Sometimes our questions stand out. Sometimes our questions really bother and frustrate us. Sometimes questions we have about life, faith, the universe, and our purpose make us feel all alone. Here's the truth. Everybody has doubts. Everybody has unanswered questions that don't make sense. Some of our doubts are seemingly small, and some of our doubts have really stumped us. Doubts can either hold you back or move you forward. So the question is, where are your doubts taking you? Well, before we get started today, there are a couple dates on the horizon in the life of our church that I want to make you aware of. On the night of May 20th, we are going to be hosting an event called A Night of Celebration down at the Old National Bank Event Center in downtown Evansville. Now, the purpose of this event is to celebrate and uh, honor uh, our senior pastor, Ken Eidelman, as well as our former executive pastor, uh, Jack Arney. Uh, Pastor Ken's last weekend here at Crossroads will be May 21st and, and 22nd, and, and Jack's last time here on staff uh, officially as a pastor uh, will be sometime in the month of June, and so we just want to take an opportunity uh, to honor them, to honor their service, and, uh, and celebrate them in a way that is deserving. And so you can log on to our website, cccgo.com uh, forward slash events to learn more information about this night, a meals included, a banquet uh, will take place, and uh, on that website, you can also purchase your tickets uh, for a night of celebration. Again, that's going to be May 20th. Uh, the other significant date that you need to be aware of is the weekend of May 14th and 15th. Um, all three services that weekend will be about where we're headed in the future as a church. You know, one of the most commonly asked questions that people have uh, for me since it was announced that I'll be the next lead pastor is, where are we going? You know, where are we headed as a church? Well, that weekend, I'm going to be uh, preaching a message called Our Future Together, where I will be unveiling our five-year vision as a church. And so we're going to talk about things such as where we are today, why we can't stay here, where we're headed in the future, and how we're going to get there. Now, the truth is, our vision as a church is so big that if and only if it succeeds, only God can get credit for it. And so I want to personally invite you to be a part of services that weekend and learn how you can be uh, a part of what God is going to be doing in our community, in our nation, and uh, around the globe through us here at a place called uh, Crossroads. Now last weekend we kicked off this series called Room for Doubt where we've been identifying life's toughest questions. I mean we've been talking about things about faith and God and, and life's unanswered questions. We all have doubts. We're all skeptical of things when it comes to the idea of faith at different moments in our life, right? And so when we have those questions, when we have those doubts, where do you go? I mean where do you turn? One of my best friends growing up is a guy named Jason. Jason grew up in the church. In fact, his dad was a pastor. While he was in undergraduate school, Jason decided to follow in the footsteps of his dad and become a pastor as well. And so after he graduated from Western Kentucky University, he enlisted at a local seminary to study the Bible and prepare for ministry. Well, about halfway through his semester there in seminary, I noticed that he was just struggling with his faith a little bit. I mean, he had some serious questions that he was wrestling with and, and, and trying, to, trying to figure out. And so during one conversation I had with him, I, I asked him why, what the basis of his questions really were, and, and this is what he told me. 
He said, Patrick, I, I just don't understand the Bible. He said, how in the world am I supposed to trust an ancient document filled with so many ridiculous stories and outdated teachings? And you know, in that moment, there's a part of me that knew exactly what he meant. I mean, there are some things in Scripture that are just a little bit tough to accept when you first read it, right? But when he told me that, there was also this other side of me that was a little bit bothered. And to this day, it still gets to me a little bit. You see, I wasn't bothered at all by his questions. I wasn't bothered at all by the doubts that were surfacing in his mind. No, he had good questions. You see, he just wasn't willing to go through the difficult work of struggling and wrestling and, until he found some sufficient answers. You see, it's one thing to be skeptical, but it's another to wrestle and struggle and, and ask those tough questions to get to a place where, where you finally have some answers, right? And so whether we know it or not, a lot of us walk in here today with a lot of doubts and questions about the Bible, right? And so the question we're going to be addressing today is, isn't the Bible full of myths and mistakes? Now, you might think that questioning the legitimacy of Scripture within the walls of the church is, is kind of like your creepy relative who shows up at family gatherings unannounced. I mean, you know that he's there, you'd just rather not acknowledge him, right? Now, you may not be able to identify that, and you may just be that person, all right? <laughs> and so I don't know where you are when it comes to your opinions and connotations regarding Scripture, but I want you to know that Crossroads is a safe place, and this is an environment where we want you to know it's okay, it's okay to wrestle, it's okay to doubt. Now, I want you to know up front so that you're not ambushed by what we talk about today, that it might get a little bit tense and, and heavy in here at different moments throughout our talk today. And, and you might choose to get up and leave, and you certainly have that option. That's certainly something that you may do. But what if today could be a game changer for you? I mean, what if today is the day where you begin finding the very thing that you have been searching and seeking for your entire life? And so what I want to do is I just want to start out by, by stepping into your world if you have some doubts, by, by understanding maybe some reasons why you doubt Scripture. Now, the first reason why, why you might say, hey, I, I can't really accept the Bible as true is, is because of the irrational stories, right? I mean, there are some narratives in Scripture that are just a little bit tough to comprehend, and they just don't add up, right? One of the very, uh, the very first book in Scripture begins by describing how the entire universe came into existence. Maybe you have a hard time understanding the creation account and, and the so-called claim that the earth is only around 6,000 years old. I mean, you're convinced that science contradicts this, considering radiometric dating methods have recently found some rocks to be millions and, and billions of years old. Or what about that story of God appearing to a guy named Moses in the form of a burning bush? I mean, you might read that and think, man, whoever wrote this story, he was definitely burning some bush. <laughs> you know, you thought it, come on. <laughs> I mean, then there's the story of a, of a man named Balaam who tried running from God. And so to get his attention, catch how ridiculous this is, God prevented Balaam's donkey from walking down the road. Balaam got so upset at his donkey that he started kicking the donkey profusely. And so here's what we see happening next in Numbers chapter 22. Check it out. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. You have made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. I mean, if I had a sword with me, I would kill you. 
but I am the same donkey you have ridden all your life. This is the donkey talking, all right? <laughs> have I ever done anything like this before? I mean, really? I mean, a donkey talking? If you want to read this story in a more, more colorful way, read it in the King James Version, all right? Because it doesn't use the word donkey. I thought about using it, but I didn't, all right? I mean, who can read a story like this and question its credibility? You know what I'm saying? I mean, these irrational stories are only the start, yet for you, these outlandish narratives make you laugh at the claim that the Bible should be taken literally and contains no errors. Are you serious? Another reason for you might be this. The Bible, it's culturally culturally irrelevant, right? Because of its cultural irrelevance, I mean, how how can you accept the fact that this book has any relevance over what's going on in your life today. I mean, how can one book that was written over the span of about 14 or 1,500 years that started in 1400 B.C. and wasn't really completed until around 90 A.D. have any relevance to what's going on today? I mean, after all, humanity has progressed since then. Now, there's no way, you think, to compare the issues that you're facing today with with what happened in the ancient world, right? This past week, Someone wrote in a letter to the editor in the opinion column of the Courier and Press that read this. They, talking about Christians, love to ignore how much prejudice is contained within the writings and teachings of the Bible. It's an appalling read throughout and contains many elements, talking about stories, that are painfully fictitious to any rational thinker. I mean, how much longer do you want to follow an old, poorly written book of fiction that creates separatism and the evil that it claims to be saving us from? I mean, perhaps this piece right here perfectly summarizes how you feel about the Bible. I mean, it's not just those ridiculous stories, but it's the teachings that seem to be so old-fashioned and condemning. I mean, you've stayed away from Scripture because you don't agree with what it says regarding gender roles, right? I mean, you think that men and women are essentially the same, especially when it comes to marriage. I mean, reading that a husband is the head of the home and a wife must submit to the leadership of her husband, I mean, really? I mean, that just sounds chauvinistic and and sexist at best. And then in other parts of Scripture, you read about a guy named Paul who who writes to a first century church and, and says, hey, if you're a slave, obey your master. But let's be really straight for a moment. Maybe the God that you read about in the Bible is not the God that you've experienced in your life. In the Bible, you read about a God who comforts those who mourn, and yet when you lost your mom, that's not what you experienced. Or maybe you read about a God who is perfect and a God who makes no mistakes, yet you had a child who was born with some rare illness. Maybe you read about a God who's working all things for his good, yet that's just a little bit difficult to understand considering the person that you trusted your life with walked out on you. You read about a God who gives joy to his children, and yet you seem to be in this valley of depression that's just a little bit overwhelming right now. Let me ask you, have you ever felt like the experiences described in Scripture are different than what you're going through? I know I have. I mean, even as a pastor who's supposedly supposed to have it all figured out, there are many moments where I have questions and what I read in Scripture just doesn't add up to me. 
And so what do you do with that? And maybe the seemingly distance and silence of God in your life has, said, has caused you to just conclude, you know what, I'm irrelevant to God, therefore God is irrelevant to me. Well, a third reason for you in rejecting scripture is this, offensive teachings, right? I mean, the Bible has some pretty offensive stuff in it. You've read some passages in scripture that make you just flat out angry, I mean, if the Bible really is the word of God, then that means it must be and has to be a source of authority for us. Now, that word authority in our culture brings about negative emotions and and negative connotations because you know what? You have the right to run your life, right? I mean, we're all about selfies. We're all about self-help books and self-esteem and self-satisfaction. Now, by a brief show of hands, how many of your kids or grandkids had, have memorized that song, Let It Go, in the Disney movie, Disney movie Frozen? Yeah. better question might be, how many of you have that song memorized? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if you've seen that movie before, you know that it's sung by the main character, Elsa, who's kind of declaring in that song that, that she's letting go of what people think about her because, you know what, she's going to run her life, and she's not going to be that good girl that her family and society wants her to be. And, and so the most revealing line in that song goes like this. No right or wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, she says, right? And perhaps that describes how we, we want to run our life. I mean, no rules for me. I mean, who's to say that, that I can't have sex with somebody that I want when I want it? Who's to say that a same-sex couple that are committed to each other and are truly in love can't get married? I mean, who's to say that people who are very sincere in their beliefs of a different religion are, are wrong? I mean, why would God create an actual place called hell and he says that he's loving? Really? I mean, who's to say that, that I'm a sinner and not a good person? You see, a lot of us have asked these questions every single day because the Bible seems to advocate for offensive restrictions in our life. Well, perhaps the last reason that you have a hard time with the Bible is is because of this. Documented inconsistencies. Documented inconsistencies. What do I mean by that? Well, in Scripture, there are many things that on the surface seem to be contradicting one another. Take, for example, when Jesus first began his ministry, he preached a really famous sermon called the Beatitudes. Well, a friend of Jesus named Matthew said that he preached that message on a mountain. But then another biographer, another supposed eyewitness of the life of Christ, says that he preached it on a plain. And so which one is it? On another occasion, we read that a centurion approached Jesus one day and, and asked him to heal one of his servants who was really sick. But then another supposed eyewitness account says that it wasn't the centurion who asked Jesus, but it was one of his servants. Again, which one was it? And so perhaps these seeming contradictions are the very reason why you just think that the Bible's full of myths. It's full of mistakes. I mean, for you, it's the equivalent of catching one of your kids lying about a little detail about what they did the night before at their friend's house. And and so it causes you to question the whole story altogether. Now, let me bring all of this here together for a minute. Maybe you can identify with one of these reasons. Maybe you can identify with many of them. Maybe the reasons that you have weren't even mentioned here today. Now, I'm not going to fight with you. All right? But here's the thing. If you have questions, you probably want answers. That's really deep, I know, all right? (laughs) 
But if you have questions, you probably want answers. And deep down, you know that you're searching for something. You may not be there yet. You may feel lost. You may be frustrated. Along your journey, you have stumbled upon some obstacles, setbacks, and potholes that in all honesty have kept you from trusting this Jesus guy. Now before you totally give up, before you reject the Bible once and for all, before you allow some frustrations or past wounds to speak louder than all the possible answers to your questions, I just want to lean into your reasons for just a minute with the intent of helping you doubt the right thing. I mean, the least you can do is prioritize and ask the right question, right? And so here's the thing. You will always struggle with other claims in Scripture until you accept the claim. Of scripture. You will always struggle with the other claims in Scripture until you accept the claim of Scripture. Now, believe it or not, regardless of what you've been taught in the past, not all Scripture is equally important. Now, there are many teachings in the Bible that are that, if proven false, would not change the basic essence of Christianity. But you see, there is one claim that, if not true, would totally disintegrate the validity of the Bible and the foundation of the church. And so why waste your time speculating over the lesser claims and secondary teachings when you can just start with the claim and then go from there? And so what's this foundation? I mean, what is referred to in Scripture as of first importance and of most importance? Well, if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians is towards the back uh, fourth or thir- third of your Bibles, uh, right in between the book of Romans and Second Corinthians. And if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. Uh, if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on that table right as you walked in there. And uh, today we're going to be in chapter 15, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. But before we get there, understand that a guy named Paul wrote this to a church that he started and established 2,000 years ago during the first century. And so just like a lot of us in here today, this church was full of people who had a lot of questions. I mean, they were doubting some serious stuff in their life. And, And so as a way to not dodge their questions, Paul just goes at it head on with the claim of Jesus. And so check out what he writes. Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. And so what is most important? Here's what he says. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Now that's it. I mean, these these few verses describe the one claim that you need to wrestle with before struggling with any other issue in the Bible. The central declaration of Scripture is that Jesus lived approximately 33 years on earth when his life got cut short due to being murdered. His friends placed his lifeless body in a tomb and three days later rose back to life, proving that he really was who he said he was. That he was God in the form of flesh and he possessed the authority to forgive sin and give meaning. Now this revolutionary declaration, this resurrection narrative is what led to the forming of a certain countercultural community during the first century called the church. Just after one month, Jesus crashed his funeral. And so Paul goes on to say it like this in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, he says. 
Now that word futile right there in the original Greek language literally means pointless. I mean, Paul is saying, look, to, to miss the resurrection of Jesus is to miss everything. That's why if you're going to leave room for doubt regarding the validity of the Bible, it's only fair that you struggle with the claim and not other claims, but then work backwards after you wrestle with the claim. Now, after Jesus rose back to life, he wanted to make sure that the evidence for faith in him would be discoverable. And so Paul goes on to explain just what that evidence is. Check out verse 5. He, Jesus, was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom who are still alive. That's really important. We're going to go back to that in a moment. Though some have died, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Now right here, Paul describes the central evidence behind the resurrection in what is known as the eyewitness testimonies. Now this is, what the, the, this, is, this is what the biographies of Jesus, in other words, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about in Scripture. And so the most important question that you can wrestle with when it comes to Scripture is, are the Gospels reliable? I mean, can I trust these eyewitness records? Now, in an effort to help you maybe wrestle with this question, I want, I want you to think about the story of Jesus from an alternative perspective. I mean, imagine for, for just a moment that, that I was a friend of Jesus during the first century, and, and after the Romans crucified him and murdered him, I took his lifeless body and put it inside a tomb. But then three days later came and went, and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So in other words, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus remained, remained dead. Now suppose I wanted to persuade as many people as possible that Jesus really did resurrect it would require a really strategic plan on my part in order to convince people of this, right? And so how, how would I go about bringing about this plan? I mean, from a logical, reasonable perspective, how would you implement a strategy to convince as many people possible that Jesus really wasn't dead, but he was alive? Well, first off, I would make sure that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus were credible. Now, at the very least, this means that they were men. Now, in our culture, both men and women, uh, their testimonies are, are equal. Now, no sane person today would say that, that one gender is superior over another. But if I lived during the first century, I would ensure that my story had men first arriving at the empty tomb because women were viewed a little bit higher than dogs back then. Their testimony wasn't credible and carried no weight in society. Therefore, the only logical explanation behind having a woman being the first to arrive at the grave would be that if it actually happened, and if the biographer was seeking to be completely accurate in his record. Yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all indicate that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus were women. Secondly, if I wanted to pull off the world's and history's biggest scam, I would write a convincing testimony that, that would not include minor details that, that don't feed the plot. 
Now, in the ancient world, details in, a, in fictional stories were usually very sparse. Now, today you might include details in a story to create a sense of realism. But you see, 2,000 years ago, that literary device wasn't developed. You see, including details with the motivation to convince people that Jesus was alive in my supposed eyewitness testimony wouldn't have even crossed my mind. And so what I would have done is just presented the facts and then I would have left it at that. Yet in Mark chapter 4, we read that Jesus fell asleep on a cushion in the stern of a boat. In Mark 16, we're told that when the women arrived at the empty tomb, it was, it was, it was at the beginning of the morning. It was just after sunrise. In John chapter 21, we read that Peter was 100 yards away from the shoreline and then caught 153 fish. You see, these intricate details give us the impression that these experiences were forever etched into the minds of Jesus' first observers. Now, another strategy that I would implement to pull off the, this empty tomb scam would, would be to convince or maybe at least pay off a handful of Jesus' other disciples to go along with my story. Now, it would be nearly impossible to persuade a small crowd to go along with this, but five or ten guys, that would seem doable. Also, it, it makes sense to wait several decades until the other people who knew Jesus had died, had died off themselves so that they couldn't challenge my story. Yet Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have all objectively been dated to have been written around 7 to 25 years after Jesus left the earth, which isn't that much time. To give you a little bit of perspective here, Alexander the Great's history was written four to 500 years after his death, and you know what? Nobody questions its validity. Now, you'll also notice in our text, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that the resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 people. And did you catch what Paul said in verse 6? He told his audience, many of these 500 people are still alive. And so in essence, he's challenging his church and his congregation that, hey, if you still have questions, if you still have room for doubt in your life, you know what? Go and ask those eyewitnesses because they're still alive. They saw them. I mean, after all, what would it take to convince 500 people about a lie they knew would cost them their life? Now say this story of mine that, that I had written got out and it became so popular among the people that it caught the attention of the governing authorities. Now the claim that our allegiance needs to be to the king who defeated death would be an act of treason that could ultimately cost me my life. Now if I made this story up and I was put on death row for it, don't you think that right before the blade sliced my neck that I'd speak up and have a moment of truth with the officials? You see, some people die for what they think is true. But nobody dies for what they know is a lie, right? Now, it's one thing if one person died for what they saw. But several others as well. The, thing is, the other thing is this. James, the brother of Jesus, is perhaps the most convincing proof that Jesus was God. Because let me ask you, what would it take your brother to convince you that he was God? <laughs> if you witnessed your brother being murdered, and then three days later he crashed his funeral, that'd probably do it. Right? 
Now, James was so convinced that the claim of Scripture is true that he was martyred because he couldn't deny the reality that his brother really had conquered death. Again, you will always wrestle with the other claims of Scripture until you accept the claim of Scripture. Now, trying to make sense of everything else in the Bible, honestly, is only going to leave you frustrated, confused, and distracted. And so before we get out of here, I just want to leave you with one question to think through on your own time. Now, here it is. Do you reject the Bible because of the claim or because of the cost? And do you reject the Bible because of the claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead or because of the cost? Because of maybe the implications of what it's going to be for your life. Now, oftentimes, the cost of receiving God's word as true comes in the form of frustration, ridicule, changed habits, discomfort, a loss of control, and beliefs that will ostracize you from others in society. And so let me be really honest with all of us right now. You cannot keep hiding behind your questions about stuff in Scripture that you don't like or you don't agree with. Now, you may say, well, I don't really like what the the Bible has to say about sex or homosexuality, Patrick. So let me ask you, are you saying that because you don't like the Bible calling homosexuality a sin, that that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You may say, well, I just can't get beyond the hypocrisy of Christians and and how judgmental the church is. So are you saying that that because because Christians can be a little bit inconsistent at times and that we're sinful, that, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You may say, well, I just can't believe in a God who sends good people to hell. So are you saying that because there is a hell that that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Now here's the thing. Many of us have walked in here today searching for a God that will never offend us, challenge us, contradict us, or make us feel uncomfortable. But can I tell you something? That God does not exist. And if you were expecting for the creator, Lord of the universe, to never test you, offend you, contradict you, disappoint you, or upset you, then you are assuming that the God of all creation is just like you. And so do you accept the Bible for the claim, or do you reject it because of, do, 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 you, do you reject the Bible because of the claim or because of the cost? Now, if you struggle to grasp the other claims and stories in the Bible, here's something that I want you to think about and I want you to ponder. Considering you don't possess the power to resurrect yourself from your own casket one day means that you're not going to understand everything about the one who did. And so what if you allowed the resurrection to inform your view of other stuff in Scripture rather than the other claims informing you of your view of the resurrection. Logan Miller is a friend of mine and has been a part of Crossroads for about two years now. One day out of the blue, I just asked him, Logan, why did you become a Christian? Why, why did you start following Jesus? Well, he went on to tell me that it all happened back in 2011. After dropping out of high school, Logan landed a position working at a satellite company selling TV channel packages. Well, it just so happened that his boss, Dominique Cosby, took a really special interest in him. And and Logan told me, he said, you know, whenever I was around Dominique, he loved talking to me about this guy named Jesus. I didn't know who Jesus was. I just thought it was the name that you shouted every time you got angry. (laughs) Well, over the course of time, Dominique started reading scripture to Logan. and, And this made Logan really uncomfortable at first. Well, at that time, Logan was dating a girl that he was in love with, and and that relationship eventually was severed, and and it ended in Logan going into this this deep valley of depression. I mean, all day long, he, he would think about dying. 
One evening, Logan was sitting at his apartment all by himself, and, and he told himself, this is the night I'm going to do it. I'm going to end all things right here, right now. And so he went to his kitchen, and he put a steak knife to his wrist, and each time he put the blade to his skin, he just couldn't do it. And so he shouted at himself, but, but he just couldn't do it. There's no other way to explain what happened next other than Logan broke. He dropped the knife right there in his kitchen and he just started sobbing uncontrollably. There in that kitchen, he, became, he, he began recalling every conversation that he had had with Dominique in the past. And this one question haunted and bothered him more than anything else. And it was this. What if it was all true? And what if I was the one who was wrong? Was I ready to die And so from that moment, Logan began exploring a God that he had been dodging. Well, a couple weeks later, he accepted an invitation to his first church service ever. The pastor got up to preach from scripture, and Logan told me it was as if no one else was in that room, and he was talking right to me, and and God was speaking right to me. And so during that last song at the end of service, I gave my life to the Lord. It was like this burden had been lifted, and for the first time ever, I felt this sense of freedom in my life. A guy named Paul actually says it like this in Romans chapter 5. He says, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. You see, Logan used to fear what the implications of faith, faith would be for his life. But the moment he realized that the cost of unbelief exceeded the cost of faith, things began to change. Former skeptic turned believer, C.S. Lewis, famously wrote this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so my prayer for you this past week has been that one day you will get to this place where you realize that the claim is worth the cost. There's a story told in in Mark chapter 9 of of a young boy who was overcome with demon possession and evil spirits. And and so that boy's father eventually found Jesus one day and went to him and asked Jesus if he could heal him. And so when the boy's father asked him this, it was as if the scene was just put on pause right there. Jesus turns to this boy's father and says, if I can heal him? I mean, of course I can, but, but do you believe? I love how the boy's father responded. Because you see, he just had this moment of honesty with him. He didn't try to use a bunch of big words and language to try to impress Jesus. The boy's father didn't even sweep his doubts and questions beneath the rug or put them out in some closet. No, he said, Jesus, I I believe. Will you help me with my unbelief? And I think that's a good place for some of us to start today. Jesus, I, I, I believe, but can you help me with my unbelief? Or maybe, Lord, Lord, I, I want to believe, but there just seems to be such a big gap because of some questions I have. Will you help me with that? There are others of us in here who have been following Jesus for years, but deep within the reservoirs of your heart, you still have a lot of questions that keep you from completely submitting your life to Jesus. And, and so again, I, I believe, Lord. Will you help me with my unbelief? Now, my experience has been that whenever I have questions, whenever I'm struggling or or I'm wrestling with something in my life, 
But Jesus, he, he doesn't get insecure about my doubts. But Jesus doesn't get disappointed by the fact that, that I may be questioning him. No, he's patient with me. He's in control. He's secure. And, and it may not be in my timing. It may not be an answer that I like. But always he gives me just enough grace and mercy to help me in my time of need. And you know what? He can do the same for you today as well. Let's pray. Lord, I know I speak on behalf of a lot of us in here. And that, Lord, we believe. Will you help us with our unbelief? Because, God, there's a lot of things in Scripture. There are a lot of things in your word that are just tough to comprehend, that are tough for us to get beyond. And, and God, we, we need a supernatural intervention from you to, to help us move beyond some of those questions so that we can submit more completely our lives to you. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are strong, that you are secure, that you are good, and that you invite us, you even beg us at times to question you so that we can know more fully that you are good and that you can be trusted. And Jesus, thank you for paying it all. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.